This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. We are taking a look at the idea of bus stop balancing. That is something TransLink is doing, removing some bus stops to make bus routes more efficient. And joining me now on the line is Sarah Ross, TransLink Director of System Planning. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. Uh, well, thanks for, for doing this. How do you, first off, go about deciding when a bus route is planned or a transit route is planned, how do you decide the distance between the stops and how many stops it needs? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason we call it balancing is because it's a balance of, of, of a whole bunch of factors. And we want to make sure the buses aren't too, bus stops aren't too far apart, because if they're too far apart, then they're not close enough to where people want to go. Uh, and then that makes the service you know, difficult and, and to, to use. But if they're too close together, then it can make the, the, they make the experience of taking the bus really slow and frustrating. I think anybody who's taken the bus knows that experience of if the bus is stopping every block, uh, that is really frustrated frustrating and that doesn't make people want to take the bus either so we have to balance that out and then we have to look at other factors or what are the key destinations what's the topography like are there hills can people get to the bus stops are there crosswalks so that you know we don't want to have bus stops in places where where it would be unsafe to to cross the street there's this whole bunch of different factors we look at when we're when we're determining where bus stops should be on a route Uh, so it looks like a couple of routes then are going to see some stops removed was that uh, so was it determined that they were too close together or they didn't kind of meet the criteria that you just uh, laid out yeah what we're doing right now is this this bus stop balancing uh, initiative is we've we've looked at routes around the region and and identified some of those routes where our bus stops really are too close together, but also those are routes where we have a lot of customers and also uh, a lot of uh, delay. Uh, So those are sort of how we identify which routes uh, to look at. Right now, we have a a process underway for Route 17, which travels primarily on Oak Street in the city of Vancouver, and Route 25, which which starts at Brentwood and Burnaby and goes all the way out to UBC, uh, primarily along the King Edward Corridor in Vancouver. Um, so those are the two that we're looking at uh, right now and, and have identified that there's quite a lot of stops on those two routes that aren't very well used. Um, maybe they're used by a couple of people, but overall, uh, we've identified some stops to remove from those routes. But on the 17, I think it is, 94% of customers will still have their same bus stop. Uh, And on the 25, 98% of customers will still use their same bus stop. And they'll have a faster travel time uh, because their bus won't be uh, stopping as much. And and in fact, as of this week, uh, when those stops have been uh, closed as part of our next phase of engagement that we're in, customers are saving seven minutes up to seven minutes if they take the whole route in in one direction so it's it's a it's a pretty significant uh time savings and just not having to be on the bus stopping all of the time this it makes for a much better experience yeah that that's a huge difference so in those two routes then it sounds like uh, again that that maybe there were just there were too many stops yeah we would say that's right i mean we didn't have the balance right 
in 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 that uh, in the, in those situations. But this is we're we're still in our uh, listening phase on this. Several weeks ago, we put up signs at every single bus stop uh, on each of these routes to let people know that this is something that's uh, something that's coming. We got some we got great feedback. We have learned uh, that some of the think about four stops that we had proposed closing once we heard from the community uh, we realized you know what we don't we're not going to close that stop um, for example we had we had originally proposed there's quite a few stops on Oak Street kind of right in that um, hospital uh, district and we had proposed closing one of them and then we we heard from the community, and we had, oh, no, wait a second, this is right next to GF Strong, this is a really important stop. Yes, it's quite close to the next stop, but we're going to leave, leave that in because we know how important that is. And so now, this week, we've, we've, we've closed the stops uh, only with, you know, a temporary closure sign, and we continue to listen and, and hear, and we won't make, be making any decisions until, about what stops are permanently closed until June. Uh, and as you said, it, it will streamline things. It will make uh, for the the commute for a lot of people. It will shave minutes off of that. It must be a cost savings as well for TransLink if the buses aren't stopping and starting as much. Yeah, I mean, primarily this is about making, uh, taking the bus a better experience for all of those people uh, who rely and, and who rely on taking the bus. But for sure, I mean, you know, time is, is money and when it takes uh, longer to get from A to B, or if we can get from A to B faster, then that's making a more efficient use um, of the of the resources that we have, and then we can reinvest those resources somewhere else in the system in order to to work somewhere else to to improve reliability. It's a very big focus right now. Uh, one of the most frustrating things, I think, I, I guess, other than uh, maybe second to missing the bus, seeing the bus fly by just before you get to the stop, is when you get on a bus and then say at the next stop, the driver says, we're going to sit here for four minutes because they're not on, on schedule. Will this mm-hmm. help streamline that? Or do you think, will this, this stop that so people won't be sitting on the buses as much either? Yeah, what, you, what you've just described is what we call in the business a timing point, because in order to make sure the people ahead of you on that route don't just arrive at the stop just as the bus is leaving. We we work really hard to make sure the bus runs on schedule, and it can be unpredictable about how much traffic there might be. You know, I think I think you and all your listeners know sometimes your trip, uh, you know, might take you 15 minutes, and other times the traffic is bad and it takes you a lot worse. So we we do work very hard to uh, to avoid that so that you know we can. Uh, have a consistent travel time so we can build the schedule for that consistent travel time. And that's why reliability measures such as having the right balance of bus stops, but other things uh, such as um, bus lanes or queue jumpers or um, how we build the stops overall can help the, the bus be more reliable so that we can have a consistent schedule so that the bus comes on time, but then you're not sitting and waiting at a timing point like you've described. Uh, you mentioned those two routes uh, that we're focusing on right now. Are there other routes you think that TransLink will also look at and try and find a better balance? Mm-hmm. Um, we, yes, I, yes, I do. We, we did a route, the number two route, also in Vancouver uh, early in last fall. Um, and 
I anticipate we will be looking at uh, other routes. Uh, we know that there are busy routes around the region um, that have situations where sometimes the bus stops are too close together. I don't exactly, I don't know which routes we'll, we'll do next. Right now we're focused on the 17 and the 25. All right. Uh, Sarah Ross, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. That is Sarah Ross, TransLink's Director of System Planning, talking about the delicate balance of bus stops and making sure the system is efficient and works for everybody. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for the Future of Work series, and today we're taking a look at the BC wine industry, obviously also impacted by the pandemic, what the future might look like when talking about BC wines. Miles Proden is the CEO and president of the Wine Growers British Columbia that used to be the BC Wine Institute, and he joins us on the line now. Miles, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning. How are things going for wineries uh, dealing with restrictions and dealing with where we're at in the pandemic? Well, we've been uh, hit obviously as hard as everybody else. And so uh, more recently, the uh, circuit breaker restrictions that came out a couple of weeks ago made us uh, take a step back, unfortunately. But we recognize it's important to, uh, to, to, uh, to do that in order to get this thing into check. But we are looking forward to the day when we can uh, open up again uh, in, in, in our entirety but if we have to go back to the restrictions that we were under last summer, uh, we'll manage to do that. And uh, we had some reasonable success last year. And so what did that look like as far as I know, some wineries brought in the little igloo type bubbles to make a safe outdoor dining experience or tasting experiences. What else did wineries do? Well, what it really meant was uh, really controlling the flow of people. Again, it's all about restricting people gathering, uh, obviously, is the key, the key word in, in this pandemic. And so what wineries did was really control how people came into the winery. There were those uh, igloos or those uh, isolated areas where you could do some dining. But what it really meant was booking ahead uh, for, uh, for an experience. It used to be that people would come to the winery and come to the tasting uh, room, up to the tasting bar and hold their glass out for a sample, and sometimes that got to be very busy. So uh, as things were uh, restricted and the proper COVID procedures were put into place, that meant really limiting that. But what it, it, it ended up providing was a more thoughtful and curated experience, not just holding your glass out, having a taste, but getting it explained to you in, in a more thoughtful way. And that really translated into, uh, into a, a good boost in sales. Uh, we've talked a lot about the numbers and uh, the numbers released saying that people are drinking more during the pandemic, whether it's because uh, places, establishments have closed or have limited capacity or maybe people don't feel comfortable uh, going out and are ordering in or, or buying at the liquor store. Uh, if people are drinking more, has that translated to people drinking more BC wine? It, it it may have initially, but uh, I think as we started getting further into this, people really started becoming budget conscious and really making uh, selections based on on price and uh, bc wine as uh, listeners will know is not the most uh, inexpensive wine uh, that's available it certainly is the the, the best i will argue um, but we started showing a shift there and uh, i think we see a lift in the, some of the cheaper import wines that are coming through but again that gets balanced out over time and and we've always been about food and, and dining experience uh, bc wine and so we've got good partnerships with uh, BC restaurants as though they're restricted as well. But some of the takeout opportunities. So when you go to take a get your takeout meal from a restaurant, you're encouraged to get a, a bottle of BC wine to go with it. 
Uh, what about ordering direct from the winery? And I know some of the rules around what you can and can't do have shifted a bit. Is Do you think that enough is being done as far as ease of ordering and making sure uh, even if people physically aren't going to wineries, they can still access the product? Yeah, that, that's been a really good uh, saving uh, grace for the wineries as well. Over the last few years, they've really built up their uh, wine clubs. So when people came to visit and enjoy the wine, uh, they fell in love with it and uh, signed up for the wine club. And so when the restrictions came and they were limited for their ability to go back to the winery to buy or pick up, uh, they were doing a lot of that online. So we saw a big increase in wineries filling orders coming directly from consumers uh, from their home. And so that really was a good balance. The offsetting thing, though, was in order to encourage that, a lot of wineries had to waive their uh, shipping fees. And that really eats into their profit. But I think we're starting to find a balance there. And as I, as I said earlier, when we see these restrictions starting to be lifted and hopefully uh, the vaccine makes its way through, uh, through the population and people are allowed to come back and visit, we're looking forward to, uh, to having them and seeing them. Uh, with the wineries in BC, if I'm correct in saying there's, there's about 300 of them, are they going to survive or are you fearful that, that some wineries won't make it through this? Well, it's it's tough to say. The wine business is not an easy business at all. I think there's a real romance to it, and, and consumers uh, fall in love and, and really can experience that romance. But I think people need to realize that winemaking really starts in the vineyard. And uh, to be a winery here in the province of British Columbia, you have to have land. You actually have to physically have a tie to a vineyard, and you actually physically have to be at least growing some of your grapes. You can be buying other grapes. So you're a farmer first and foremost, and what that means, there's all the uh, the variations and mother, treatment of Mother Nature that go into that. And so if you don't are unable to grow the grapes, you're going to have a challenge being able to bottle, make them and bottle them and sell them. But on top of that are all the regulations that uh, are uh, overlaid on top of uh, the wine industry. And one of the big things that we're uh, fighting now is the loss of our excise, federal excise exemption. So there's a lot of things that enter into it, um, but in the end, uh, we're hoping people can can see their way through. Most of our wineries are small family-owned businesses, and they and as I say, they're farmers. And so uh, uh, it remains to be seen. But uh, people supporting uh, BC wine today, this month is uh, BC uh, April Wine Month. So uh, and we've seen great pickup for consumers. So as long as consumers continue to support uh, BC wineries, uh, we should see our way through. I forgot. I say I, I forgot it was Wine Month. Yeah, that April uh, is BC Wine Month. Um, interesting. You mentioned kind of the romanticizing of it, and and it does kind of conjure up those images of, of people stomping grapes and uh, the and all the family coming together and and everybody coming together uh, for harvest and that kind of thing. Is that changing? As far as we see automation in so many other industries, is that changing when we're talking about winemaking as well? No, it's not. I think uh, what people will think about or or you could appreciate with wine growing regions around the world is that there are vast tracts of vineyards. And again, that's probably why they're able to uh, get their product uh, produced as cheaply as they can. There are scales of efficiency. But again, we're small. Um, You know, most of our, our vineyards are I think the average is under 10 acres. And so uh, automation, just you can't, you can't turn a tractor around in a small vineyard like that. So a lot of it's done by hand, uh, and you're in the vineyard multiple times. You're in pruning uh, year-round and, and tending to the vines. So there's a lots of hands-on uh, work that needs to be done. And, and getting that automated, uh, I don't see that happening. So it's a, it's a personal touch, literally. And in the, in the winery itself, in the production side of things, it's much uh, an art as it is a science. And uh, that's uh, really hands-on in, in, in tasting the wine and blending the wine. 
So I, I don't see uh, automation really uh, affecting our industry. Now, technology, certainly, there's a lot of research that continues to be done on, on making efficient and growing efficient grapes. Uh, so we, we, we do rely on the science. But when it comes to the uh, growing and making of wine, that's uh, still uh, still done by hand primarily here in the province. All right. Just uh, before I let you go, uh, with the restrictions right now, and again, Dr. Henry yesterday saying people uh, to stay in their community, not travel, uh, how much of an impact will that have with especially the Okanagan region and wine regions in BC so dependent on tourists, even tourists from within BC coming there? Yeah, no, it does. Certainly does. I mean, we rely on uh, people coming to visit uh, Wine and culinary tourism in the provinces is, is big, and it's not just from people from outside, but as you say, people within the within the province itself. So, uh, but we've we've come this far. Uh, we support the government and what they're doing. We recognize, you know, it's for the it's for the greater good, and uh, nobody's nobody's happy about it. But uh, hopefully, uh, we'll see our way through, and we look forward to uh, to uh, welcoming visitors to BC wineries uh, in the coming months. All right, we'll leave it there, Miles Proden. Thanks so much for taking the time with us this morning. My, my pleasure, and enjoy a bottle of wine for April BC Wine Month. <laughs> All right. That is Miles Prodan, CEO of Wine Growers BC, that was formerly known as the BC Wine Institute, talking to us about the future of the industry and how wineries in BC are going to be weathering another season, another busy season with the pandemic. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it took several months of negotiations, but Ottawa has reached a deal with Air Canada, allowing the airline to access up to almost $6 billion in loans and equity financing. Air Canada workers' jobs, pensions, and collective agreements will be protected. We also have a guarantee that there will be no further job losses. At the same time, dividends and share buybacks will be restricted and executive compensation will be capped. That was Finance Minister Christian Freeland announcing some of the details of this agreement. Let's bring in Claire Newell, a global news travel expert, also the president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks, Jill. Yeah, this was a long time coming. You know, we're the last of the G20 that have come with uh, airline-specific support, but very good news for for customers who weren't refunded. Um, we should be clear that Air, Fund, uh, Air Canada has actually refunded more than $1.2 billion to customers who did hold refundable tickets since March 2020. But this was for all the people who were holding non-refundable tickets, you know, the, the latitude or type or the tango type fares. So um, this is really Really good news. A lot of people will be very, very happy with this. But, you know, this was a really complicated negotiation deal. They needed to, the federal government had to come up with an agreement that was going to be good for Canada and Canadians, the, the airline industry, refund the passengers, protect all the workers. I mean, it was really complicated and, and really difficult process. But there is no doubt in my mind that without uh, a federal uh, aid package to Air Canada, it would have been a skeleton of itself. I mean, the uh, airlines have been, um, you know, letting go um, not only airports and um, flights and their schedule has gone down to a skeleton, but the staff has just been, you know, it, it, it's a shell of itself. And we've become so used to waking up in the morning and being able to think, hey, I want to go to from Vancouver to Prince Rupert. Well, you can't do that now. Um, and so one of the things that was important from my perspective was not only the aid package and making sure that Air Canada was going to be there at the end of this pandemic, 
but that it would be there in the same capacity, not just hitting all the big cities across the country, but all the smaller areas, because some of the regional uh, regional airports here in BC, like Comox, Kamloops, uh, Penticton, Prince Rupert, I already said that, um, and Sandspit, they all in this uh, agreement now have to be up and running by June the 1st. So for, for many people and many you know, little communities, this is a really important day. Uh, exactly. And I guess people might think there's a bit of mixed messaging there in that we're being told to kind of stay in our communities right now. But yeah. but I think this does look into the future as well to, to start them up again, knowing that we will get back to traveling and we will get back to being able to safely go to different places and uh, those smaller centers like you just mentioned. Yeah. And it's uh, that's the thing. We we know that there is light at the end of the tunnel, and it, it has been a, a slow process with the vaccine procurement and the rollout. We know that compared to you know our friends down south, where we were looking, uh, a few, you know, just even months ago when we were doing a great job up here, and the situation was worse down in the U.S. But um, the reality is, is they are traveling, and we will be soon once the uh, the percentages of the uh, of people who have been vaccinated actually rises a little bit more, Jill, and we want to make sure that we have that infrastructure in place. You know, I do have friends who live up in Prince Rupert, and they're so grateful that they know that that flight's going to be coming back, because can you imagine driving back to Vancouver from Prince Rupert? <laughs> a pretty <laughs> drive, tough. but a long one, <laughs> yes. A long drive, so, um, and anyone who was holding that uh, non-refundable tickets, the way that it will be processed, we're getting more details on this now, but it will likely be going back to the, the original form of your payment, and if you booked with a travel agent, you can contact them and go through the process. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a massive undertaking. They may do it like many of the airlines uh, in the past who were starting to do refunds. They will start with the people who were affected first, those February, March 2020 departures, and then work their way through. But knowing that it is coming and that you've got the federal government's backing, so you know it's for sure coming. <laughs> so what should someone do if someone's listening to this and they do have one of those tickets? So what, should they be doing something right now to get in the queue to get the refund or what happens next? We're getting, we don't have a whole lot of details at this stage of the game. Um, it seems like customers can request their refund online at aircanada.com slash refund until June the 12th. It's it, That's what it looks like. Um, and then the policy does also apply to Air Canada vacations packages, which is really good news because a lot of people here use that and book their Air Canada tickets with uh, accommodation, say in Hawaii or Las Vegas or whatever. Um, and any customers who did book through a travel agent, they must contact their agent directly. So that's at this stage, that looks like the process. And I understand as well, there's some thought that this could be extended to other airlines. Yes. Uh, you know, we do know that that additional $1.4 billion that are being available to refund tickets, those funds are actually being at uh, be, they're able to be accessed by other airlines as well. I would expect that we would see some sort of a deal for WestJet very, very shortly. It may not be the same. I mean, uh, the federal government has taken an equity stake in Air Canada to the tune of $500 million. Um, and again, said it's all alone and it eventually will be paid back. It has to be paid back between, I think, five or seven years. Um, and hopefully there will also be something for the other struggling airlines that we rely on, especially for our, um, you know, the, the, the popular getaways, the Sunwing and the Transats, because without 
those in the game, less competition ultimately means higher prices for us as consumers. So let's just fingers crossed that the other airlines will be taken care of across this country. All right. Some uh, good news on that front, especially for those waiting for refunds. Claire Newell, thank you so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Jill. That is Claire Newell, global news travel expert, also the president of Travel Best Bets. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, could this next story be any more interesting? Yes, I just made a play on words. Uh, that was nothing compared to what the YVR Twitter account did. They had some fun with this story. Thousands of bees, originally from Australia, have arrived in Vancouver, and it was no simple task getting them here. But what are they going to do now that they are in this province? Well, my next guest is here to talk all things bees, Paul Van West. Dorp is a provincial apiculturalist. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, hi, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, these uh, bees were brought over, uh, they uh, flew from Taiwan over to Vancouver. There were some great pictures that YVR sent out when they arrived. Uh, they will now uh, be distributed in very part of various parts of the province. Uh, why is it important or why do we need to import bees? Oh, uh, well, to offset loss, winter losses that beekeepers often incur. And they cannot import bees from all parts of the world. There are only a few selected uh, countries uh, that are permitted to export bees from there to, to, to Canada. Uh, and that includes Australia, New Zealand and Chile. And why are those rules in place? Oh, uh, for animal uh, health uh, protection uh, issues. So in other words, disease issues uh, that... Uh, uh, that will make sure that the bees that are imported do not carry certain diseases that we do not want in uh, uh, to come here in Canada. Uh, that makes sense, uh, because I think uh, people might have seen that and wondered about that too, uh, what safeguards are in place and how do we make sure that exactly what you said, that they're not bringing in perhaps something that's not wanted. That's 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 correct. And and by the way, this entire uh, I find this extraordinarily amusing. And I uh, about the the uh, the great interest that this uh, recent arrival of all these lovely bees uh, have have generated, because in itself, uh, this has been going on for many, many years. It's just simply that because of the COVID-19 situation, some of the traditional carriers have not been able to deliver or transport these bees from Australia or New Zealand to Canada. And so China Airlines uh, stepped up the plate and made it possible to, uh, uh, to, uh, to have this smooth uh, transport from Australia to Taipei and from Taipei to Vancouver. And that's just wonderful. Uh, yeah, it's something we, uh, we didn't really think about, uh, did we, as far as uh, the changing of the rules and, and what's happening because of the pandemic? Who would have thought it would have such an impact on the importing of bees? Well, exactly. It is a huge logistical problem for many of these airlines because in the past, for example, um, uh, Air Canada would transport them from directly from uh, Sydney to, to Vancouver. But because of rescheduling and because of less aircraft flying and all these other uh, technical components, it became very difficult for the Canadian importers to, uh, to get their hands on these, uh, on, on these bees. And so last year was a major disruption, and many of the planned imports never took place. Um, but this time, arrangements were successful. Uh, were successfully made with uh, one of the carriers, and um, they arrived uh, very well. It seemed. Uh, so, how difficult is it then, or figuring out exactly where they need to go in BC to kind of replenish the bee populations? How do how do people on the ground here figure that out? 
Oh, uh, that that is in itself an, an, a thing that is mostly arranged months ahead of time. Uh, there are only a relatively few uh, people or companies involved with the import, large-scale import of uh, these bees. Uh, they, they are coming in pellets, and each pellet contains something like uh, 700 or so uh, bee um, uh, colonies, if you will, uh, packages, we call them. And uh, they are then uh, distributed to different uh, uh, sellers and, and and buyers and everything else and that 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 is often planned months ahead of time and i would imagine it's planned then also uh, the number of bees uh, and does it is there a, a quota as far as queen bees or how many queen bees are coming into bc as well Oh, well, that is then a different thing. You, you, you have bee packages, which contain basically bulk bees with a queen in a small little cage, and that costs a certain amount of money. And of course, all the way from Australia, that is fairly expensive. But you have separately to that also the import specifically of queens, queens only. So they are in a small little uh, uh, prison in a little container, uh, you might say, in a cage. Uh, with a number of attendant bees that will uh, look after her. And uh, those are then shipped in large numbers from different countries, including Australia and New Zealand, and are then imported uh, into Canada. And these ones are then introduced into existing colonies uh, where the queen has to be replaced because she's getting old or whatever other reason there is for the beekeeper to replace her. So, uh, So that is a separate enterprise. How are we doing as far as bee populations? Because I know we've talked to you and we've covered stories in the past about a potential shortage in bees and the the damage that can be caused from that. Yes. Well, every winter, winter constitutes a huge stress factor to to all the colonies, and that can vary from year to year. So, uh, so in one uh, some years you have terrible winter losses. And in other years, the beekeepers are doing quite well. So this year, we are still not entirely certain, other than that some beekeepers have reported high losses, while others said we are doing great. So it's kind of difficult to predict this at this point in time, but our annual survey will will show what the end result is going to be. Actually, if you look across Canada, in Canada we operate more honeybee colonies today than ever before. Well over 750,000 colonies are managed here in Canada. The, the difference is, compared to 30 or 40 years ago, the service life and the cost of management of these colonies is 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 shorter and the costs are higher and that is due to the presence of various diseases and pests so that's why the economics of beekeeping has become uh, much harder for commercial beekeepers to meet all right uh, we will leave it there for this morning thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, to talk more about this you're right something that uh, probably happened all the time and we never paid much attention but with the disruption because caused by the pandemic uh, all eyes were on that uh, photo of the bees on the plane uh, paul thanks so much for being with us oh uh, you're most welcome thank you all right that is paul van westendorp a provincial apiculturist talking about the delivery of thousands of bees. They arrived just a few days ago at YVR all the way from Australia. Uh, China Airlines bringing those bees here to help pollinate fruit trees in our province.